The scripture reading is from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 through 6 and the book of Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 6. Uh, They can be found on pages 262 and 807 of the Black Bibles in front of you. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The word of the Lord. My wife and I just uh, celebrated our 10-year anniversary a few weeks ago, and as we were reminiscing about these 10 years, one of the memories uh, that we kept uh, going back to, of course, was our children and their birth. Uh, I still remember being in that hospital, waiting for Leah, our firstborn, with anticipating hope, but also being in that room with Nancy, who was in deep pain that lasted for many hours without knowing exactly when it would end. But eventually at close to 10 p.m. after waiting and agonizing and crying all day, our sweet daughter was born. Through that pain, something beautiful entered the world. Who doesn't like a happy ending? We all want to believe that at the end of it all, things will work themselves out somehow. But is it really possible to get a happy ending to each of our individual stories? Is it really possible for even the difficult and painful parts of our lives to find resolution? Could it be that each of our stories can ultimately be redeemed? Well, the answer that this text that we just read this morning gives to those questions is yes, it is possible. 
And not only is it possible, but as followers of Jesus, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, it's a promise that actually begins in this world, but will find its ultimate end in life after death. But that happy ending doesn't come like we often think we want it to, or hope, or expect. In fact, what this text tells us is that Jesus redeems our stories, but as the suffering king. But how can a suffering king redeem our stories? Wouldn't it be better if we're going to have a king to have one that is powerful and with a lot of influence, one who does exactly what we want when we need it? Well, today we're going to see the story of two very different kings and how they use their power. First, we're going to see an abusing king. And then second, we're going to see a suffering king. So first, an abusing king. Look again or listen at verses 2 and 3. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now we're introduced here, of course, to King David, one of the most uh, well-known characters in all of literature, a beloved staple during the Christmas season. But then the story zooms in to focus on a woman named Bathsheba. So we'll actually start with her story first. Now we actually know quite a bit about uh, Bathsheba's family by what scriptures the Old Testament tell us. We learn here, for example, that her father was Eliam, who was a well-known and respected man in his community. Elsewhere, we read about her grandfather, Ahithophel, who was King David's chief advisor, a man so important that Scripture tells us that getting an advice from him was like talking to God. And then, of course, we get Bathsheba's husband, who was Uriah, one of King David's elite soldiers. He was one of, uh, that the text actually describes as the 30. That's the title that the 30 most elite soldiers of David's army are given the 30. Uriah, her husband, was part of that elite 30. So even though Bathsheba was not royalty, the men of her family were part of King David's most trusted inner circle. Now an important detail that is mentioned in the text is that Uriah, her husband, was a Hittite. The Hittites were a powerful nation in Canaan that were constantly at war with Israel. The fact that Bathsheba marries a Hittite, being an Israelite herself, suggests that at some point Uriah left his people and joined Israel. Now we're not told why, but we can speculate that Uriah worshipped the God of Israel. He was a man to use terms that we might be more familiar with, who went to church and worshipped God. So the story continues in verse 4. So then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. 
and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. What does it mean when the text says that she purified herself from her uncleanness? Because the way um, it talks about it, it sounds like she did something wrong, like sleep with King David, and therefore she had to clean her impurity. Well, that's not what this text is talking about. What this text is referring to is Bathsheba, just before being called by King David to his palace, had completed something that the Jewish religion called ritual purification. Ritual purification. Now, this washing or bathing by Bathsheba was a ritual purification that Jewish women had to do after their menstruation. According to Jewish law, a menstruating woman was considered unclean for seven days. Now, I know that it sounds a bit strange and maybe even offensive to think about this, but it's important to understand that Bathsheba's impurity was not hygienic or moral impurity. It was ceremonial or ritual impurity. So, for example, Jewish law required water purification in multiple other cases. Uh, For women after childbirth or after someone touched a corpse or came into contact with blood. Now, I don't have time to go into the meaning behind this purification. If you're interested, we can talk about it later. Now, this ritual impurity ended at dusk on the seventh day. When the woman participated in this total washing, again, only for spiritual cleansing, not physical. And because this was such an integral part of daily Hebrew life, um, Israelite cities and towns developed this water system called a mikvah, which is essentially a public cistern or an open-air shower for ritual cleansing where people remained clothed. So why is all of this important to understand? Well, for those of us who have heard this story before, many times we've imagined that Bathsheba was bathing in the open, naked, in her backyard, and King David simply saw her, and well, they committed adultery. But on the contrary, what this simple parenthetical statement is signaling to us is that Bathsheba was a young Hebrew woman who kept Jewish law and was married to a distinguished warrior. In other words, as far as we can tell, Bathsheba was an honorable woman. Now with that in mind, let's look back at the rest of the story with King David. Let's go back to verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So every year, after the cold of winter, nations would wage war in order to gain ground, increase their power, and accumulate wealth. And it's precisely what we see David doing here with Israel. David is very well known in scripture as a strong and brave soldier. So the text begins precisely how we would expect it to begin. 
David sends Joab, the general of his army, along with the commanders in all of Israel to destroy their enemies, the Ammonites. Now the text implies that David sends every single soldier available at his disposal to battle. But then the text tells us something we don't expect. David stays behind in the capital, Jerusalem. David, while he sends everyone else to fight, stays home. One afternoon, after getting up from his nap, he goes up to the roof of his palace, and from there he sees this woman bathing, purifying herself, and sends to ask about her. And they tell her, or tell him, that she's the daughter of Eliam, that uh, she's Uriah's wife, whom he would have known personally due to the strong bond and relationship he had with their family. However, it's not enough to stop him. He sends messengers to take her by force, and the text is emphatic that he lay with her. Now, weeks later, as Uriah continues in war far from home, Bathsheba sends a message to King David letting him know that she is pregnant. And now, it's at this point in our story that our reading ends. You can read what happens after by reading the rest of the chapter, but let me give you a brief summary. After hearing the news, David sends for Uriah, and on two occasions, he tries to send him home to his house, hoping that he would sleep with his wife and be free from what he did. But Uriah doesn't do that. In fact, the way uh, that the text describes his speech and his actions actually speak volumes about the kind of moral and upright man that Uriah was. So King David, wanting to cover up his crime, uses his power as king to send him to the front of the battle where Uriah dies. So here's the story. A king with full power full authority, and full control, using his position to take advantage of a young woman and her family. In fact, from then on, you keep reading the rest of the story, Bathsheba pays dearly for David's sin. After getting pregnant, she suddenly widowed. And as if that weren't enough, in the midst of her mourning for Uriah, Bathsheba's child dies at childbirth. So in case you're keeping count at home, in one single episode, David breaks four of the Ten Commandments. The seventh, shall not commit adultery. The tenth, shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The sixth, you shall not kill. And the eighth, you shall not steal. Do you relate to either of these characters? Have you ever found yourself paying for someone else's sin, like Bathsheba? Have you ever been caught up in the consequences of someone's greed or manipulation? Perhaps you're recovering from a husband who decided to leave. Or from an employer who took advantage of your situation. From a friend or family member who damaged your reputation by what they said about you. Or maybe, perhaps, 
you're suffering the consequences of your own compromise, like King David. Maybe you made an indiscretion or a mistake that you've never been able to recover from. Maybe you said something about someone with the intention of hurting them, or you took advantage of a partner or of an employee of yours. See, if we're honest, all of us have been Bathsheba and David at some point in our lives. Like Bathsheba, there are people who have taken advantage of us, and we've had to bear the consequences of the evil that others have done to us. And like David, we've taken advantage of the kindness and the generosity of others. We've made others suffer either because of something we did to them, something we said to them, or maybe even something we thought against them. Now, I'm not trying to suggest some kind of moral equivalence here, right? Um, this, they're not trying to minimize the real pain and suffering that David inflicted or that Bathsheba suffered. And we'll get to that in a minute. But it is easy, especially for those of us who haven't quite experienced such agonizing suffering, to point the finger at David and feel moral superiority. But Scripture doesn't let us get off the hook that easy. None is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, no one does good, not even one. See, the question for most of us is not, how could David do that? But how can we constantly rebel against a holy God and sin against others? And in the midst of all of this mess, what hope is there? Is redemption and forgiveness possible for people like David, for people like us? Is there hope for people like Bathsheba? Could any good come from so much wrong? Second, the suffering king. About a thousand years after this story, a descendant of King David was born. And we all know that kings are all the same, right? All seek to protect their own power, satisfy their needs, and increase their wealth, even if it means sacrificing others in the process. So what else can we expect from a descendant of King David? Surely he'll be like his ancestor, right? Let's read once again and listen to how the author describes this genealogy of David's descendant. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, descendant of David, descendant of Abraham. And Jesse the father, was, da- was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The text doesn't give her a name, and the text describes her as a wife of another. What we see right here in the genealogical tree of Jesus is the young Hebrew woman Bathsheba, who was taken advantage of by a powerful king, whose husband was killed by that king, who suffered all of her life because of the sin of that king. We see is that through that woman, 
Jesus is born. Bathsheba becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior and Lord of the world. Jesus comes from royalty. But more than that, he is the Son of God, creator of the universe. He has all the power at his disposal. But what kind of king is Jesus? How does he use his power and his fame and his riches? The Apostle Paul says in one of his letters that although Jesus was in the form of God, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, making himself similar to men. Unlike his ancestor, King David, Jesus, the king of the universe, would rather strip himself of all power, take the form of a human, and suffer with his people before demanding what belongs to him. In other words, the answer that we're given to Bathsheba's pain is Christmas. God, incarnate in Jesus, knows what it is like to be Bathsheba. Jesus knows what it is like to be betrayed. He knows what it feels like to have someone speak wrongly of you, trying to ruin your reputation. Jesus knows what it feels like to be taken advantage of. God incarnated, took on flesh and blood like us, and with that, he took upon himself all the weaknesses and frailties of the human race. But he doesn't just empathize with us and join us in our pain and our suffering, though that is a glorious truth. But he also purposes to put an end to all sin, to all injustice, to every abuse, to every hurt. In other words, the answer that we're given to David's sin is also Christmas. Jesus is the birth of God's justice, the answer to all the deep evils of this world, not just David's, but yours and mine. The scriptures say that everybody lies Everybody cheats, everybody steals, everybody does what they want to do. But this is the radical message of Christmas, that Jesus is good news both to the Bathshebas and to the Davids of this world, both to the victims and to the perpetrators, to the faithful and to the faithless. Jesus paid for our sins by taking them upon himself, nailing them to the cross, and breaking their power so that now those of us who approach Jesus by faith are freed from the guilt and from the power of sin. Why did the author decide to include Bathsheba in the lineage of Jesus? Because it means that God can redeem all things. God can bring victory to the victim, purpose to pain, and fruit from failure. From the pain of Bathsheba, God brought the Messiah. From a terrifying, horrible evil that happened to Bathsheba, God transformed it into 
a good. The message of Christmas is that in Jesus, all all of our unfinished tragedies are redeemed and renewed. In 2 Samuel 11, Bathsheba seems to have neither resolution nor justice nor a happy ending. In fact, her abuse by a powerful king is only the beginning of a series of anguishes that she has to suffer for the rest of her life, including betrayal and murder. However, 2 Samuel 11 is not the end of Bathsheba's story. Her story continues in Matthew 1, and that is where it is resolved. And like Bathsheba, we can also find peace there. Through Jesus, all of our painful experiences are given new meaning and purpose. Now, this doesn't minimize the real pain that others inflict against us. And it shouldn't minimize our conscience against the harm that we cause for others. In a, re- in a very real sense, the truth is that we continue to deal with the consequences of the sins that others cause against us and that we cause against others. And those wounds may never heal, or at least not 100%. But amidst the damage that others cause us, we can look back at Jesus, the king who suffers, the king who is betrayed, the king who dies. The coming of Jesus reminds us that God identifies with us and that he understands us completely. But furthermore, it reminds us that God is a God of justice. That one day, he's coming back very soon to put an end to all evil, to bring justice against abuse, and to straighten everything that is crooked in this world. To bring justice to the Bathshebas and the Uriahs of the world who suffer under the evil of the strong and the powerful. And that is good news. Let's pray. Jesus, as we've already been reminded this morning, uh, this Advent season gives all of us a mix of emotions. So many of us, it is a joyful season with joyful memories of childhood and of gifts and of family. But there are for so many of us where this season only reminds us of heartbreak and of pain and of suffering. If not because of the season, then simply because we can't experience it to the fullness. For those of us that are caught in that tension, you give us yourself in Jesus. A king who understands completely what it is like to bear the full weight of the weaknesses that we carry as humans. And yet, he doesn't just empathize. But he nails him to the cross and he dies in our stead so that now we have life and life abundant. If not in its fullness, in some measure, we can experience peace. For those of us who don't feel that this morning, 
Give us that peace that we so want and that we so need and remind us that there is a day that is coming so very soon where all of the sad things will come untrue and we will bask and enjoy the glory of your face till that day comes. Keep us faithful to you in hope and in trust. Through Christ our Lord, amen.